You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. We have a very special guest that I'm thrilled to announce, and here's why. Eight years into our time planting in Los Angeles, where many of you know my wife and I, in 2004, 2005, we began the process of launching Reality LA down there in, in Hollywood. And eight years into it, my wife and I began to felt s- stirred to leave everything we have and move to London to plant a new church. Try telling that to the inlets. <coughs> lots of tears, lots of prayer. It was a huge step of faith. But we knew that we weren't going to leave unless we knew that the church was going to be well-led and taken care of. And by the grace of God, I didn't need to look any farther than to a particular man who was already on staff with us. We had hired him several years earlier. He was amazing, like such an incredible Bible teacher. I was immediately learning from him, such a great leader. And so when God was leading us to step out to London, I just knew... He was the man. It was so clear. It was so obvious. This man was not only a a wonderful leader, but a great friend to me. And I had every confidence in him leading this church as we moved on. You've heard me, if you've been around the church, use the analogy often of the difference between a match and a candle, right? A match can get the fire going and it provides some light and heat, but it's only going to last for a temporary period of time. But if you can use that match to light a candle, it will bring long lasting light to a room. Well, this man was the perfect guy for that. He took the match of Reality LA and was able to turn it into a candle to give long lasting light. The church in LA continues to thrive. I'm so thankful for and proud of all that God is doing in and through Reality LA. And I haven't said his name yet, so I'm just hyping it up. He's going to kill me for this. But Dr. Jeremy Treat, will you please welcome my dear friend and wonderful pastor, Jeremy Treat, as he brings the word of God. Jeremy, we love you. We're glad you're here. Thank you, Tim. Jeremy's also going to give just a little update on how Reality LA is doing. Yes. Uh, Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you today. And uh, I'm really grateful for Tim Chaddock. And he's a dear friend of mine. But also, I was reflecting just this week on how much I learned from Tim. We ministered together in Los Angeles for about two and a half years. And looking back on that... I learned so much from Tim of how to pastor, how to preach. I think I learned 10 years worth in two and a half years. And so I'm so grateful for Tim, his friendship, the influence he's had on my life. And you all are really spoiled here at Reality Ventura to sit under Tim's preaching week in and week out. And I'm, I'm equally grateful for the leadership here, for the elders and the staff, the leaders at this church. Uh, they love you so well and care about you and pray for you. And so I'm honored to be able to come in and encourage and support today. I also do bring greetings from Los Angeles. Uh, On behalf of Reality LA, I want to say to you, Reality Ventura, we love you. We pray for you. We care about you. And we are so grateful for your presence here in Ventura. Uh, A lot of people ask me, how are things going at Reality LA? And my short answer is just that by God's grace, it's been such an encouraging season The church feels healthy, vibrant, and we're just seeing tons of fruit. We're seeing the lost get saved, the lonely get brought into family. 
and the city of angels really being impacted by the kingdom of God. But today I'm excited to be with you in preaching from God's word out of 2 Corinthians 12. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians 12. We're going to be talking about how God is with us in our weakness. And this is a sermon today for people who are struggling, for people who don't have it all together, for people who are on the verge of giving up, for people who are weak. And look, if you're here today and you're crushing it, like everything's just going great in life, praise God, pray for us, okay? Uh, but most of us are hurting in some level. We're struggling, we are weak, and God has a word for us. But before I read 2 Corinthians 12, I wanna tell you a quick story. I went to my mom and dad's house a couple of years ago to surprise my mom for her birthday. And uh, my two brothers and my sister came along. We surprised my mom. We had this amazing birthday party and we're hanging out at my parents' house into the late hours of the night and none of us live around each other. And so we're spending time catching up together. And my brother goes and gets this box of old pictures and brings it out. And we just lay all these pictures out on the table and we're looking through these old pictures. And when I, I grew up in Alaska and so we're reminiscing on times in Alaska and our family. And uh, I find one picture in particular that caught my attention and it was of our family. And we're down in my, my dad's office in the basement of our house. And looking at this picture, and I was kind of laughing of all the details of it. And there's a lot of things that... Uh, a lot of timestamps in the picture that reveal the era that we were living in. My dad was wearing a fanny pack. My mom had big bangs. I think I had a mullet. My brother had a bowl cut, something like that. Lots of neon colors in there. It was all like 80s, 90s, right? But I'm looking at this picture and I notice on the wall in the background behind us, a sign in my dad's office that says, never admit defeat. And seeing that sign reminded me so much of the mentality that I grew up with. See, I grew up playing sports. And so it was always, you gotta be tough. You work hard. If you hurt, you don't let anyone know. You cover that up and you work hard. I grew up watching Rocky and Rambo and my dad giving me pep talks about being strong and never giving up and don't admit defeat. But then the thing was, my parents were great parents. But as I became a Christian, I took that mentality and applied it to my faith. It's, I gotta do good. I gotta be strong. And when I'm not, when I'm struggling, when I'm weak, then I cover that up and I pretend and I perform and I gotta do what I'm supposed to do to bring God, to bring God glory. But seeing that sign reminded me of something. I grew up learning how to hide weakness, avoid weakness, and cover up weakness. And yet when we open God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what we see is an invitation to embrace weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength. Let's look at God's word together. I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses seven through 10 and open our time with a word of prayer. I'm gonna start about halfway through verse seven in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, 
I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word. Pray with me. God, we come before you today experiencing weakness in so many ways. I know a lot of people walked into this room carrying pain, loss, grief, doubt, just the weight of the world on our shoulders. And God, I pray that today would be a day that we would stop trying to hide the weakness that we experience. I pray that today would be a day that we're honest with you and others. And in opening ourselves up and acknowledging our weakness, God, we pray that we would experience your strength. And Lord, we thank you that your strength comes to us in mercy and grace and compassion. And so Lord, would you meet us where we're at today, but would you transform us by your love in your son, Jesus Christ? We pray this in his name, amen. All right, so I wanna walk through this passage in 2 Corinthians 12 and talk about three invitations from the Lord. And the first is this, to embrace your weakness. Now, I know that in our society today, weakness is not something that you want to embrace. If you talked about that in Ventura, if you talk about it in our country, people would say, no, I want, I want to run from weakness. That's not a good thing. Well, we're not the only people to think that way. When we look at 2 Corinthians 12, this is a passage that comes as a part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a small church in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was a new city. It had been an ancient Greek city, but it was destroyed by the Romans and was being built up from the ground. And it was, a, it was in a place where it's really an intersection of the ancient world. And so this city is being built. People would come from all over to this city. It was a place of upward mobility. And the culture of Corinth was defined by impressiveness, status, and self-promotion. So what's going on with the Apostle Paul is that people in the church in Corinth are actually accusing Paul, saying he's not a real apostle because he's not impressive enough by worldly standards. He's not a great orator like the Greek philosophers. He's not good looking. He's not entertaining. They even said he suffered too much to be a real apostle. And so Paul is writing to them and saying, listen, weakness is not an obstacle to God's strength. It's a channel for God's strength. It's a platform to show off God's strength. But not only does he want the people in Corinth to see that, this is personal for for Paul. In fact, in the passage, he talks about how he had this thorn in his flesh. It was something that he wanted so desperately to be removed. He pleaded with the Lord over and over again, God, would you take this away? And we don't know what it was. Maybe it was a physical ailment. Maybe it was psychological. Maybe it was emotional. But whatever it was, it was tormenting Paul. And he prayed to God again and again and again for God to take it away. But God responds to him by saying this in verse nine. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in... Now pause right there. If we're honest, what we want that to say is we want it to say strength. We want God to say to us, my power is made perfect in your strength. Because what we would prefer 
is to connect with God in our wins, in our successes, in our strength, in the areas where we do really well. That's how we want to connect with God. But it doesn't say that. God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And weakness here does not mean sin. I'm not talking about embracing sin. No, it's quite the opposite of that. What does Paul mean by weakness? I think he's talking about the limitations that come with humanity. I think he's talking about suffering, trials, and the cumulative effects of living in a world that's fallen and broken by sin. And I think this word weakness is really important for us. In fact, it is for me. I'll tell you about a a time for me that was really pivotal. About a year ago, I was just struggling. I was really stressed. I was exhausted. I felt off. I felt spiritually depleted, almost numb. And whenever people would ask me how I was doing, I I would usually just say I'm stressed or I'm tired. And I was reading through the Bible, which is my normal reading plan one morning, going through 2 Corinthians. And I read this passage And when I read the word weakness, it was like it jumped off the page. And it gave me a category for my experience. When I saw it, I was like, that's how I feel. I feel weak. But not only did it give me a category for what I was feeling, it gave me direction for what to do with it. It's as if God was saying to me, Jeremy, stop running from your weakness. Stop trying to cover it up. Stop stop trying to hide this weakness embrace weakness. God wants to meet you in it. And God wants to do that in your life. He's inviting you to embrace your weakness as a way of experiencing him. And listen, some of you might be hearing this right now thinking like, all right, like the pastor wants me to be more weak. Like, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Everything's great. Like he's just trying to, I gotta leave here and try to be weak. No, listen, I'm not asking you to be weak. I'm asking you to be honest. Everybody experiences weakness. We all go through stuff. We all struggle. We all have pain. And I'm simply asking you to be honest about that. Stop running from it. Stop covering it up. Bring it to the Lord. Why? Listen, it's okay to be weak. God is strong. And this is important for us because we live in a culture that defines strength as independence. I mean, we're Americans, right? Like what we mean by being strong is that I can do it on my own. I don't need other people. But listen, the goal of the Christian life is not independence, but reliance. It's learning to rely on God and his strength and then to rely in healthy ways in the relationships that he gives us in our lives. Embrace your weakness. But that's not the end of this. He goes on with this invitation to embrace your weakness so that you can experience God's strength. See, we're not talking about weakness for the sake of weakness. It's a path to something greater. And listen to what Paul says in verse 10. At the very end of it, he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Like what? Like if you're reading that, you might, like that doesn't make any sense. Like, Weak and strong, they literally mean opposite things. Like, how can he say, when I am weak, then I am strong? It doesn't make sense. Well, what he's saying there is he's saying, when I acknowledge my own weakness, then I'm able to tap into God's strength. And God's strength makes me strong as I rely on him, even in my weakness. And so that's what it's calling us to do, is to experience God's strength. 
But the key to all of that is grace. Paul says, or rather the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. The way that you will experience God's strength in your weakness is not by getting your act together or by trying harder, but by opening yourself up to receive of God's grace. And yet I think it's incredibly difficult for us to receive God's grace, especially in our culture today. See, we can understand grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's a gift of his mercy and his love. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's grace. But while we can understand grace, sometimes it's hard to receive. And I think it's especially hard for us to receive because we live in a performative culture where we base our identity on our accomplishments. We associate our value with our resume. We live in a performative society where we define ourselves what we, by what we do and then project that to the world as how we want people to see us. And a performative society leads to transactional relationships. Oh, here's what I can do. Oh, and you can do this? Great, I'll be your friend. And we don't love people, we use them for what they do for us. And we even take this performative mentality and it leads to a transactional relationship with God. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I come to the Lord. And here's how I do it. All right, God, I've been going to church, read my Bible. I miss a few days. I read my Bible here and there. I, uh, you know, I help some people out. Okay, God, now I'm ready for you to give me the stuff I want. Where's that promotion? Where's the house that I want to get? What about this marriage and perfect vision of a family that I've been waiting for? Okay, God, I've paid my dues. Now you need to give me what I want. It's a transactional relationship with God. But listen, Our relationship with God is not based on our religious performance, but on his loving grace. Reminds me of a story of a little boy who wanted his mom to compensate him for all the chores that he was doing around the house. And so he left a note for his mom in the kitchen and the note said this, for washing the dishes, you owe me a dollar. For cleaning my room, you owe me a dollar. For hanging up my clothes, you owe me a dollar. For mowing the lawn, you owe me a dollar. Mama, you owe me. Pay up. (laughs) He printed a bill uh, totaling $4 and gave it to his mom. So the mother came and put $4 on the kitchen table with a note of her own. And her note said this. For carrying you nine months and being sick as a dog, no charge. For staying up all night with you, night after night when you were sick, no charge. For working overtime so that I could get you those special tennis shoes, no charge. For entertaining your friends when you wanted to bring them over without notice, no charge. Signed, your mother who loves you. Total, zero. That's grace. And how often do we come to God with our entitlement and our demands not recognizing that we owe God our very lives. Everything that we have is a gift from him. And yet, even though we're like that kid who's entitled and comes to God with demands and expectations, how does God respond to us? He comes to us, even though we're entitled and arrogant, he comes to us not with punishment, but with mercy and grace. He says, I love you. 
I give you more than you could ever earn in the first place. I've done it all for you. It's grace. I mean, can we just pause for a moment to acknowledge how lavish God is in his grace? He's been so good to us. He's been so kind and patient and gracious towards you. And isn't this what Advent is all about? I mean, the word Advent means coming or arrival. So it's not about how we work our way to God, but how, how he has come to us in grace. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Every other religion is essentially about how we work our way to God. Christianity is about how God has descended to us in grace. And as we're looking at this passage about power and weakness, I mean, before we even apply this to our own hearts and our own lives, we need to see how this power and weakness is exemplified most beautifully in Christ taking on flesh. Jesus came not as a king, but as a servant. He was born not in a palace, but a manger. His mother was not a queen, but a poor teenage girl. He assembled not a band of soldiers, but a community of disciples. He entered into Jerusalem, not on a Roman horse, but on a donkey. He was given not a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. He ascended not to a throne, but to a cross. And he advanced his kingdom, not with force, but with love. It's all God's grace. And that's what we remember in this Advent season. What you're gonna hear people talking about in our society is about joy and peace and love as if those things were the end goal themselves. But no, we, we come to Christ by his grace because he first came to us. And it's in Christ that we experience joy. It's in Christ that we experience peace. It's in Christ that we experience love immeasurable, amen? And so God invites us to embrace our weakness, to experience God's strength so that we can endure with resilience. The church in Corinth that Paul was writing to, it was a young church who were on the verge of giving up, walking away from Christ. See, Paul had planted this church. He spent time with them. But then he went on to plant other churches and he would write letters back to the church in Corinth and he would visit them and he would send people to them. But what happened when he left the church is things got messy pretty fast. Uh, You can actually go back into the book of 1 Corinthians and read about this and it will explode your idealism of the first century church. You think like, oh, back then, the book of Acts, like they all just loved each other and followed Jesus and everything was great all the time. No, like read the book of 1 Corinthians. It was chaos, okay? Sin brought lots of disorder. Uh, They're literally dividing over who their favorite preachers are. People are getting drunk during communion. Sexual immorality is rampant to the point that someone's hooking up with his stepmom and everyone else is okay with it. Like this church was a mess. And what you had in this church is it was a young church. Think about it. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth at least within five years of when the church started. And so basically you have a whole church of Christians and nobody's been a believer more than five years. And so as Paul is talking to them about power and weakness, he's doing so to give them a vision of how to be faithful to the end. And I think we need that. We need to embrace our weakness and experience God's strength so that we too can endure faithfully to the end. Here's how much we need this. 
Uh, there was research done recently by the Barna Group. There was a study on young adults in their 20s with a Christian background. And here's what they discovered of these uh, young people with a Christian background. 22% of them, they referred to as prodigals. That means that they attended church at some point, but no longer identified as Christians. 30% they called nomads. These are people who identify as Christians, but are not connected to a church. 38% were habitual churchgoers. So they describe themselves as Christians and they attend church from time to time, but they do not have the core beliefs or behaviors associated with following Jesus. And then 10% they called resilient disciples. These are Christians who not only go to church on Sundays, but are connected to the church in other ways as well. They believe in the authority of scripture, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they have a desire to bring transformation outside the church because of their faith. But here's what I want you to notice about this. Only 10% of young Christians are resilient disciples. 10%. And what does it mean to be resilient? It means that you have the ability to bounce back, to withstand difficult times, to get up when you get knocked down, to endure no matter what comes your way. But here's the thing. The call to be resilient is for all Christians. It's not for 10%. It's not for whatever someone might consider super Christians or the fanatical Christians. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And you will need a spiritual resilience to follow Jesus faithfully to the end. It's not an easy time to be a Christian. And you will inevitably in your life go through trials and tribulations and trouble and experience persecution. Many of you are going through that right now. And so when we look, as we look at 2 Corinthians 12, and it talks about power and weakness, earlier in this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul gives us beautiful imagery that helps us understand this. It's in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 9. And he says this, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now pause right there for a second. Why would you put a treasure in a jar of clay? Uh, a treasure is something that's valuable. It's expensive. It's worth a lot. A jar of clay is, is by definition brittle, frail. It's easily broken. Well, this treasure that he's talking about, if you look at the verses beforehand, beforehand he's talking about the gospel the good news of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's this treasure and he puts it in us as jars of clay. Why? Well, he says it. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's his strength being made perfect in our weakness. But then he goes on in verse eight and he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. I love this passage because first of all, it acknowledges the struggle that's real in life. Scripture does not ask you to sugarcoat the problems that you experience in life. Nobody, nobody in God's word is asking you when you go through difficult things in life, to smile, sprinkle some spiritual fairy dust on it, quote Romans 8, and act like everything is fine. Like nobody's asking you to do that. Listen to what Paul does here. He says, we are hard pressed on every side. Like 
he's not holding back. Like, I'm getting hit from every angle right now. He says, we're perplexed. Like, we're not sure why all this is happening. He says, we're persecuted. We've got enemies who are attacking us and we are struck down. He says, I feel struck down. But here's the thing. While this passage acknowledges the hardships, it also does not give them the last word. So you may be hard pressed on every side, but you're not crushed. You may be perplexed, but you're not in despair. You have hope. You may be persecuted, but you are not abandoned. You are not alone. God is with you. You may feel struck down, but you are not destroyed. Suffering in this life is inevitable, but it's not final. And we will experience trials, but they don't have to be what define us. Because no matter how weak we are, Christ is our strength. It reminds me of a fourth century pastor theologian named Basil, who stood up against false teaching in his day and age. And there was an Aryan emperor who did not like Basil and did not like what he was teaching. And he commanded him to stop teaching about Jesus, what he was teaching. And he wouldn't do it. Basil wouldn't stop. And so the emperor threatened Basil with confiscating his goods, with sending him into exile, torturing him, even threatening him with death if he wouldn't stop teaching about Jesus. And listen to Basil's response to the emperor. All that I have you can, that you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. Nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to tortures, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ. And death would be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. It's as if he's saying, you can't take what I've got. And if I've got God, I've got all that I need. I've got everything. I mean, what can you do with a Christian like this who has a mentality that says, if you strip me naked, I'm clothed in Christ. If you take my money, I'm rich in Christ. If you take my life, Jesus gives eternal life. It's like trying to blow out a fire, but it stokes the flames to grow even more. This is the kind of spiritual resilience that we can have in Christ. But it doesn't come by going around our trials but by allowing God to lead us through our trials. And so listen, I know that many of you come into this place today carrying weight of pain, of loss, of grief, of disappointment, relational tension in your life. And I want you to know that the way that you deal with that pain will either make you a resentful person or a resilient person. If you don't deal with that pain and you let it fester, it will turn into bitterness and it will spill over into resentment, not only to the person who wronged you and hurt you, but to everyone else in your life. But if you take that pain and that grief to the Lord and you meet him in your weakness and you lament your your pain, and you grieve over your suffering, and you meet God in that place, God can do something beautiful with it. With God, there is always purpose in the pain, and God wants to use your suffering and your trials and your hardship to make you resilient. You see this throughout scripture. Don't be surprised by suffering. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. And yet he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. 
In James 1, it says we can take joy in our trials because God is using it to produce maturity in us. In Romans 3, it says steadfast produces, uh, suffering rather, produces perseverance. And so we need this spiritual resilience to be faithful to Christ. So here's what we've seen in 2 Corinthians 12. It's this invitation to embrace weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength so that we can endure with resilience. But you have to know that all of this is grounded in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. I talked earlier about Advent, about how our king became a a servant. I mean, what a beautiful picture of power and weakness of the infinite becoming infinite, becoming finite for us. But Jesus didn't stay a baby. He grew up, of course, and he lived a perfect life. He was perfectly merciful and just in all he did. In everything that he did, he was loving to his father and to everyone around him. And yet, he took that life and he offered it up on the cross for us. Jesus died in our place for our sins that we might be reconciled to God and made whole and given new life. He died to take your guilt, to cleanse you of your shame, to let the shackles fall to the ground so that you could walk as a new person with a new family on a new mission, not living for your own puny empires of making a name for yourself, but living for the kingdom of God and his glory, amen? But you've got to understand that Jesus was not impressive to the world. In fact, they looked at him and laughed. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross, you know what it looked like? It looked like foolishness. It looked like weakness. It looked like defeat. And yet, there's no greater display of power and weakness than through the cross of Christ. Jesus became weak. He willingly took on the limitations of humanity. He willingly entered into our suffering and our trials and our hardship. Why? He became weak so that in him we might become strong. And so Paul says to the church in Corinth, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's power made perfect in weakness. And so the cross teaches us that God can enter into the worst situations and make something beautiful out of them. He can do that in your life today and he does it by grace. I wanna close by telling you a story. On January 24th, 1974, Keith Jarrett was set to perform a solo piano recital in the Opera House in Cologne, Germany, to a sold-out crowd of 1,400 people. There was a young woman who organized the event named Vera Brandis, and she'd got everything together, but there was one mistake. When Keith Jarrett showed up to the Opera House, he was surprised by the piano that he saw. Because for such a grand occasion, he had requested a grand piano that would be fitting for this 1,400-person opera house. But when he got there, what he saw, instead of this grand piano, was an old, small, dilapidated piano. 
hardly even worked. It was broken down. It was out of tune. Some of the keys were stuck. Some of the pedals didn't work. The felt was worn out. And he looked at this piano and said, there is no way I am playing this. And he turned and walked out. And as he's walking out, everyone's flooding in, filling up in anticipation for this concert. And so Vera Brandis, this young woman who was responsible for organizing it, she runs after him, catches up to him, literally as he's getting into his car. And she pleads with him. She says, you have to come in. You have to play. And he says, no, I'm not playing on that piano. She says, all these people are here. We can try and tune it, please. She begs him. And finally, he comes in. He says, we'll see if we can get it tuned. And so they take time. It takes a long time to tune this piano. And finally, in the late hours of the night, Keith Jarrett sits down at the piano to 1,400 people and begins to play. And early on in this performance, everyone in the room could recognize something magical was happening. He was playing differently. He was improvising. He was working around the keys that didn't work. He was playing it hard because it was a smaller piano. And as he played, everyone recognized he was giving the performance of his life. In fact, that performance ended up being the greatest selling solo piano performance, the recording of that greatest selling album of all time of solo piano performances. Here's why I tell you that story. Because even a broken instrument can be used to make something beautiful in the hands of an artist. And God is the greatest artist. God is a redeemer. He's a healer. He's a restorer. He is a savior. And no matter how weak and insufficient you feel, God wants to write a song of redemption in your life. No matter how broken you are, God can create something beautiful in and through you. No matter how much you're hurting, God can orchestrate a glorious work in your life. But we receive that through faith. And so I want to close by calling you to faith. And faith is simply opening our hands and our hearts to receive of God's grace. But here's the thing. The natural posture of our fallen hearts is like having tight fists. In fact, would you do something for me? Would you hold your hands out and make them into a tight fist? This is the state of our fallen hearts. We want control. We want to do things our own way. We want to take credit for it. Now, faith is when we relinquish control of our own lives. And we say, God, my life is yours. Would you do something with me and open your hands? This is faith. But now I want you to do something else. I want you to relax your hands. Let go. What happens? Your hands close back up, right? We are tempted constantly to take control back of our lives. And so faith is not only an initial surrendering of our life to the Lord, it's an ongoing trust in God, saying, I need your grace today as much as I've ever needed it. And so some of you are here today and you don't know Christ. You came in here not as a Christian. And I wanna call everyone here to faith. So for some of you, maybe that means for the first time, opening yourself up to receiving of the Lord, 
opening your heart to receive of his grace, opening your, your arms in a, in, a, in a posture of surrender, saying, my life is yours. But for all of you, I wanna call, call you to ongoing faith and to recognize, even when the trials and tribulations come, to open your hands to God's grace, knowing that he is good. Church, it's okay to be weak. God is strong. And you can embrace your weakness as a way of experiencing his strength. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you so much that even though in our sin we have rebelled against you, run from you, God, we've, we've forgotten about you. <laughs> we thank you that your response is to pursue us in compassion and mercy and tenderness and to shower us with your love. God, we remember this Advent season that you willingly entered into this brokenness, this mess that's a result of our sin by sending your own son, Jesus. We pray that you would give us faith to think of the cross and to see it not as defeat and foolishness and weakness, but as wisdom, power, and victory because we know that the cross